Welcome again to our study of the epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to begin with verse 15 this evening. Glad you're here with us. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you that you give us this opportunity to meet together this way and to study your word. Lord, we're grateful that by your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, you enabled the writers of Scripture to be carried along, borne along by your Spirit, so that what they wrote was what you intended them to write, and you preserved it for us, and we thank you. We thank you for this epistle that Paul wrote. It is so relevant to all of our lives, and we thank you, Lord, that you have maintained it and kept it for us. And we want to study it, to read it, and to hide it in our hearts so that we would walk in the footsteps of our Messiah and do so in a way that pleases you and so that we might be lights in this world for your glory, for your grace and mercy that you have given to us in our Messiah Yeshua. So I pray, Lord, you would bless all those who are gathered together to study and I pray that your word would have its true effect in all of our lives and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm going to read the entire chapter, chapter 3, as we always do at the beginning of our lessons, and I'm reading today from the ESV. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or the Torah, but that which comes through faith in Messiah the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Messiah. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Yeshua Messiah who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, what a wonderful chapter. We're going to begin with verse 15 and go through 18 uh, tonight, Lord willing. And we're at the bottom of page 181, if you uh, are interested. And I put that on the recording so that people who listen to it later would be able to find their place. So verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. So he begins with this uh, admonition. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, do something. 
Well, when we read the word perfect, we wonder, what does that mean? We all know that none of us are perfect. Well, it is clear from the comparison to verse 12, in which Paul states regarding himself, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, that he's not here seeking to address any of the believers in Philippi as though they were perfect in the sense of having come to the point of spiritual maturity in which they never again would commit sin. So when we hear this word perfect in our ears, we think, well, this is the the goal, this is the finished line. But Paul says he hasn't reached the finish line, and neither have we. So how are we to understand Paul's use of the word perfect in this verse? The Greek term translated perfect by the NASB is teleos, the noun form of the verb teleao, to be perfect, which Paul uses in verse 12 in the expression become perfect. Given that Paul obviously is not addressing his remarks here to those believers in Philippi who had attained spiritual perfectionism, which means never to sin again, we are left with the question of what Paul means by using this language. Now, when I use the word perfectionism, it's because there are those um, who label themselves as Christian churches, who believe, as we mentioned last week, that they believe that a, a person can come to the point in their Christian life where they never sin again. They would become so mature and so given over to the Lord that they would no longer sin. They call it perfectionism. The apostolic church, there's a few others uh, that also hold to this uh, uh, erroneous and unbiblical view. Paul clearly is not teaching perfectionism here, even though this is the text that many of them use as somehow substantiating their view that a, a believer can reach some kind of maturity, which they call perfectionism, where they no longer sin. As noted above in the commentary on verse 12, the idea of perfect in this context is that to which all believers must strive, but which will ultimately and finally be reached only in the world to come when mortal puts on immortality. In other words, when this body is changed, as the scriptures teach us, into that which is immortal, that which will never die, those who are the Lord's, we who believe in Yeshua and have been born again by the Spirit, we will receive a body that will be absolutely apart from the sinful nature that we now have. So then, what does it mean that Paul refers to us as, or refers to those who are believers in his day, as perfect? As noted above, as I've said, in the commentary on verse 12, the idea of perfect in this context is that to which all believers must strive, but which will ultimately and finally be reached only in the world to come when mortal puts on immortality. Given this fact, we should understand that the Greek term used here, teleos, can also mean maturity. That is, the life of the true believer in Yeshua, which continues to progress in sanctification. That is, to become more and more conformed to the likeness of Yeshua. It is the growth that the true believer will have. Now, not everyone will progress in the same way, at the same time, in the same uh, amount of time, and so forth. We recognize that. But there ultimately is this growing to be more and more set apart to God and apart from the sinful world. So, given this fact, we should understand that the Greek term used here, teleos, can also mean maturity, as I said, and that is the life of the true believer in Yeshua, which continues to progress in sanctification, uh, that is, to become more and more conformed to the likeness of Yeshua. Such progress may not be at the same pace for all, obviously, but all who truly are born again will continue to win the battle against the sinful flesh and live a life that increasingly conforms to righteousness as God defines it in his word. And that is the all-important truth. We need to come to the word of God and say, what does the word of God define as maturing, as growing to be more and more like Yeshua? Well, this is why the NIV and some others translate the first clause of our verse this way. All of us then, who are mature, 
should take such a view of things. Surely he uses the same word group, teleo, in verse 12 to describe the eschatological consummation. That's just a big word that means the final time when Yeshua comes and takes us unto himself for eternity. So it seems as though that uh, the perfect, the word perfect in, in this context uh, by Paul is used to describe the ultimate of the believer's final salvation. But the same word can also carry the meaning of goal or aim toward which someone is pointing. So it would appear most likely that Paul is using this word to emphasize not a level of maturity that the Philippian believers have reached, a level that includes himself, but rather having the same primary goal in mind as one lives out their life of faith in Yeshua. This fits well with the foot race metaphor that Paul has been using. Remember, throughout this passage, he's talking about the race. He's talking about uh, undoubtedly what he had uh, become aware of, of the Greek Olympics, as it were, or the uh, the sport of, of the runner uh, racing against other runners. And he talks about leaning forward. He talks about maintaining, going after the prize, and so forth. Those are all uh, metaphors for this race, spiritual race that we're running. And it, so this whole idea of what does it mean to seek to be perfect, that is, to be mature, to be fully what God wants, well, it fits well with the foot race metaphor that Paul has been using. Even as a runner must continue to train in order to complete the race and to do so as one who strives to win the race, so Paul characterizes the believing community to which he is writing, as comprised of those who have shown themselves to be genuine believers in Yeshua. In other words, we see that there is a finish line, and we should be striving for that. What is the finish line? It is to stand approved in the very presence of our Lord. Now, we all will if we're truly His. We don't earn our prize. He enables us to run, but we work with him, right? We have the ability to grieve the Spirit of God, and we have the ability to submit to the Spirit of God. And this is all part of the believer's life. It begins by the placing of faith and the growing in faith, but it includes also what is commonly called sanctification, our justification, is being declared not guilty in God's court on the basis that Yeshua by his death has paid for our sin and we no longer have the debt of sin in the uh, court of heaven. So that's justification. But everyone who is justified will inevitably seek to be sanctified. That's running the race. It seems so often in modern Christendom that there's uh, this is not uh, emphasized nearly what it ought to be. That basically it's to get someone to accept Jesus and then, you know, to continue coming to church and so forth and so on. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't many churches, there are many churches that uh, emphasize the need to grow in one's faith and to grow in sanctification. But there are, I believe, many, many who have been taught the erroneous message that once you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're in. Now, they may, they may encourage you to become more and more like him, but it's not put forward as a necessity. It is this, that someone who... How do we know that someone is alive physically? If you're a medical person and you're ascertaining whether the person is alive or not. You look for a pulse, but you also look for breath, and so forth and so on. There is evidence of life, and if the evidence is not there, then the question of life is a major question, right? What is the evidence of true being alive in Messiah? It means to grow in likeness to him, in sanctification, in becoming more and more what he intends us to be, and to be less and less given to the sinful nature that draws us to do what God hates. 
This is going to be a struggle. Paul has already taught us, the things that I don't want to do, I do. He is expressing that goes on within every believer of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the sinful nature that we have, and to give ourselves wholly unto God. That's what it means to grow in maturity, to run the race towards being what God intends us to be and will make us to be, and what is that? Perfect in His sight. So, what is the mark of such genuine faith in Yeshua? It is a steady progress in sanctification, having a life that more and more conforms to obeying God by becoming more and more like Yeshua in thought, word, and actions. So, sanctification is the hallmark of what is truly justification. If we have been declared not guilty in the court of heaven, if the Spirit of God dwells within us as the Scriptures teach, then we will be urged more and more to put away the deeds of the flesh and to live more and more fully unto the Lord. Now, it is not as though there is a level of maturity that a believer reaches in which he or she no longer struggles against the flesh. Thus, even though the Greek term could be understood as meaning to be mature, the better picture that our text offers is that of a believer who continues to make progress by applying the means of grace. We talked about the means of grace last week, but I repeat it here again. The means of grace. What is the means by which we become more and more conformed to what God wants us to be? Well, admitting where he or she has failed, seeking the forgiveness from God and others, personal application of the scriptures, and regularly engaging in prayer and life-to-life fellowship with other believers. This is our life. It is what we have been called to. It's the gift that we've been given to run this race for the Lord by His strength as we receive from Him and take from Him that which He willingly gives as we seek the truth of the Scriptures, as by the Spirit we seek to apply that to our life, and as we congregate with other believers and encourage one another in the things that are most important in our spiritual walk and life. So he says, have this attitude. The attitude, aroneo, which Paul enjoins here, is that which he has repeatedly emphasized in the previous context, namely, in using the metaphor of a race, what a true athlete does in the race. Verse 12, I press on so that I may lay hold. Lay hold of what? The prize. The reward at the end of the race. And verse 13, straining forward to what lies ahead. That's another picture of the runner doing everything he or she can do to, to come to the finish line first. And verse 14, I press on toward the goal. This likewise must be the attitude of all who are truly born again by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, through faith in Yeshua. To win the race means to persevere in becoming more and more what the Lord intends us to be. And sometimes it's the most uh, difficult thing to accept that helps us in that. When someone in true love comes to us and says, I need to talk to you about something that I see in your life that I think needs to change, and we don't bristle and say, oh, I don't want to hear you. No. Together, we help each other in this race. And God has determined that we will become more and more like his son, Yeshua. And Paul goes on to say, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Well, how will he reveal it to us? Sometimes he reveals it to us by someone confronting us. Very often he reveals it to us by the study of the word of God, because it convicts us. We see, oh, this is where I'm not doing well. The word of God helps us as a mirror to see ourselves truly as God sees us. And prayer. In prayer, God will bring to our hearts and minds, if we're ready and open to it, those things which he wants to change in our lives. Well, since Paul recognizes that very often a written message may be interpreted several ways 
by those who hear its message. In other words, somebody hears the same message and two, two people get two different ideas. Paul is sensitive to the fact that not all of them would be at the same level of spiritual maturity and thus may wonder if they were expected to have the same level of faith that Paul has and enjoins upon them in his letter. He's saying, you know, I want you to be perfect like I'm perfect. (laughs) But he means by that, seeking to run the race with all that you have. He does not want them to expect that he has a specific time frame in which spiritual maturity and boldness must be achieved. In other words, if you don't make progress by such and such, then you're a fake. No, that's not what he's saying. His point is, rather, that spiritual growth and progress is the ultimate goal of all who are true believers, and some may attain a faster pace than others. But if we really want to, again, using the analogy of a marathon or some kind of a race, uh, we want to come in first. We want to receive the, what was in the Greek Olympics, a crown of the reward. But ultimately, what we want to receive is the words, well done, right, by God himself. Well, but the reality is that all who are truly born from above, and thus have the indwelling Spirit of God dwelling in them, will be led and urged by God himself to continue the race, not giving up, and will by God's grace finish the race to the glory and praise of God. If we're all honest with ourselves, we would all have to say that there are times when we wonder, wow, is this all for real? Am I really doing, you know, am I really, uh, is this is this whole thing just something that was made up by people long ago? Or is it for real? And what the Spirit of God will constantly do is bring us back to that bedrock truth of the Scriptures. And we know that it is true. For surely God has revealed himself to us by his Spirit because the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I'm not talking about just an experience. I'm talking about exercising our faith, faith that what God has said is true, and that even the universe itself, the Bible tells us, is witness of God's greatness in Romans chapter 1. And as we take all these things together, we say, no, this idea of doubting is going to go away, and I give myself fully to trusting what God has said to be true, and I know that it is. So, indeed, the final phrase, God will reveal that also to you, can be understood to mean God will reveal that fully to you, or God will reveal that over and over again to you. For the Greek word, apokalupto, means to be fully known, to make fully known, and can imply repetition in revealing something to be grasped. Not unlike a good teacher that continues to remind a student, no, you need to do it this way, this is the right way. Let me show you, let me help you. This is what the Spirit of God does for us. All of this makes it clear that it is God's full desire and plan that all those he has drawn to himself will become more and more conformed to the righteousness which he desires, a conformity that eventuates in eternal righteousness. In emphasizing that the spiritual growth in God's work in each believer's life as they submit to him, Bruce notes regarding this final phrase of our verse, if some of Paul's readers felt bound to admit that they could not express their ambition or attitude in Paul's terms, let them not despair or resign themselves to eking out a second-rate Christian existence. Let the matter be committed to God, and that to God will make clear to you. Paul will not scold them or express disappointment that they have made such poor progress. He aims rather to encourage them. So, he says in verse 15, I would that you would be perfect, even as I am perfect. That is, growing toward that ultimate goal, having an uh, an ongoing, maturing aspect of our spiritual lives. So, he says in verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The opening word, however, translates the Greek plain, which is an adverbial conjunction. It means an adverb is something that describes the action, and but here it's a, it's a conjunction that is wedding together a previous sentence with this sentence. Okay? 
indicating only or in any case on the other hand, or the word but. Paul uses this, no doubt, to indicate to his readers that he is not expecting them all to view him as the standard or level of maturity to which they all should have already attained. Rather, he continues to point them to Yeshua himself, as well as to the standard for a life of faith laid down in the scriptures of the Tanakh. As Gordon Fee notes regarding this opening word, however, if therefore means, under any circumstances, whether you see all things fully my way or not, all of us, you and me together, must behave in conformity to the same standard. He therefore enjoins his readers, that is, Paul and us, to keep living by the same standard. What is that standard? It's the truth by which we were brought to faith. Having Yeshua himself as the standard of faithfulness, we must seek to emulate in our own lives this faithfulness, right? It should be understood that the English translation of the NESB, which includes the word standard, is actually not found in the Greek text itself. In other words, the standard is not actually there, which is why it's in italics in the uh, NESB. Note how the ESV and the NIV translate this, this text. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. The issue in the grammar are these. What does Paul mean when he writes, by that to which we have attained, or, secondly, to what that same refers, to that same that we have retained, to which he is urging conformity, and how these two relate to each other. So, let's uh, tear it apart and put it back together. The phrase, to which we have attained, surely means, to which we have already attained. And what was it to which they had already attained? It was an acceptance by faith of the gospel, and thus an ongoing commitment to live a life in conformity with the righteousness expressed in the gospel message and the life of faith taught by the scriptures and by Yeshua's apostles. Now, the scriptures that they had at this point were those that were the Tanakh, but there were some that were being written and accepted as as being the foundation for what we now call the apostolic scriptures. Again, Gordon Fee, the commentator, puts it this way, Paul seems to be calling them to live in keeping with how they have already followed Christ before they have received this letter. In other words, they came to faith, they came to confess that Yeshua was indeed the Messiah of the Tanakh, that he was the coming one. And they were to continue to understand that and expand on that in terms of what that meant for them personally. This is that to which he, that is Paul, and they have already attained, even if some are now slackening off in some way and for some reason. You know, it is true, isn't it, that we all need to be encouraged to continue on, to keep on doing what we know we ought to be doing, believing what we ought to believe, maintaining that which is necessary for our spiritual life and growth, and not becoming so entangled with the affairs of the world and with all of the things that are going on and so forth that we lose sight of the main goal, which is what? To become more and more like Yeshua. Now, each one of us can personalize that. How are we doing in our marriages if we're married? How are we doing in our homes with our family? How are we doing with our children? Are we setting examples for them? Are we helping them see the truth? How are we doing in terms of our commitment to other believers? Are we considering that it is our responsibility to help others, encourage others, to pray for others, to worship together as something that's essential for maintaining our spiritual growth? So, we can ask ourselves, how are we doing in this race? Now, sometimes introspection is difficult because we see things we would rather not see. We're confronted with things that we need to change and we'd rather not because we know it's difficult. Or we're confronted with things that we have to admit that we would otherwise not admit. Am I really this way? Do I have a sharp temper? Do I consider the things uh, that are needful for other people no big thing 
that I need to concern myself with. That's their problem, not mine. How do we bear each other's burdens and fulfill the Torah of Messiah? Because Yeshua said, the whole Torah is bound up in these two things. Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your energy and might, and your neighbor as yourself. To fulfill what God wants of us is to learn how to help one another, to care for each other, and not to put each other down or in any way throttle another person from being what God wants them to be. The words that same in in our verse refer to the life of faith to which both Paul and the believers in Philippi were committed, a life exemplified by the gospel, centered as it is in the very person of Yeshua, his work of obtaining eternal salvation for all who are his, and his perfect life of obedience to the Father. Paul's point in this phrase is that he is not teaching something new, but rather his instructions are based upon the unmovable rock of the gospel, righteousness gained for every believer through the death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of Yeshua. I think that oftentimes uh, we rightly and perfectly put huge emphasis upon the death that Yeshua died as payment for our sin, the resurrection as proof that the Father received that payment fully. But what about the ascension? Is the ascension necessary? Yes. Well, not only because Yeshua himself said that he would go to the Father, but also because he's in the process of intercession at the right hand of the Father, that is, in the very court of heaven, as it were. He is praying for you and for me, if we are truly his. And if you want to know what he's praying, you need to read John 17, because he gives there, in the garden, a an, uh, an outline, an expression of what he's praying for us. You say, well, Tim, that's kind of interesting. Why does he have to pray for us? Because he could make anything happen that he wants. Well, that's true. But there's an interesting interchange between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In working together in a relational way, Yeshua prays that all that he has accomplished in his death and resurrection would be applied to those who are his. Isn't it a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to consider the fact that Yeshua is constantly keeping us in the court of heaven before the Father that we may become what he intends us to be? So, how are these two phrases related? They are related as identifying the core truth of what identifies all true believers in Yeshua, namely, that having received the offer of eternal salvation by means of the gift of faith granted them, they will inevitably continue to grow in obedience to the gospel and thereby give glory and praise to the one who has redeemed them. Once again, I'm using that illustration. How do we know that the life of a believer or one who professes to believe is truly alive, that spiritual life, in the same way that the doctor or the nurse would look for a pulse in in someone who's brought in uh, that's they're not sure if he's alive or not. They'll look for a pulse. They'll look for breath, right? What is the pulse of those of all of us who claim to have Yeshua as our Savior? The pulse is our ongoing conformity to becoming more and more what God intends us to be. That means in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, and so forth. Well, Paul's theological point is this. A genuine faith in Yeshua creates an already, not yet, reality in the believer's life. Now, what do I mean by already, but not yet? Do we have a sense within us that we belong to God, and that we will therefore one day be with Him forever? Yes, the Spirit of God continues to speak to our spirit that we are children of God. Don't the Scriptures teach us that? Yes, they do. Okay, So we have the assurance, that's the already. What's the not yet? Well, we're still in the struggle against the sinful flesh. Even as Paul said, I do things I don't want to do. And he said, it's no longer the I that do them, but the sin that dwells within me. 
We war against the flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit, and the two are contrary to each other. So, what is not yet the coming to the point where we no longer have that sinful nature, where this mortal will put on immortality, and forever we will be with the Lord. The fact that we have the already means we have the down payment. It's sure. And is not the Spirit of God referred to as the Eravon? What is that, the Eravon, the down payment? God never puts a down payment on something and fails to follow through on owning it completely. So the Spirit of God is our down payment. And do we sense the Spirit of God urging us, convicting us, leading us, comforting us? Yes. Then we know for certain that what we have already will inevitably bring us to that which we not yet have, and that is life forever with God. So their eternal salvation is as sure as though it has already begun, even though the fullness of such eternal bliss has not yet been achieved. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians and us when he uses this metaphor. This harkens back to the Christ narrative of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, as well as what Paul has just written in verses 4 through 14. Let's go uh, read that 2, 6 through 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Yeshua, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this Christ narrative, as well as what Paul has written in verses 4 through 14 of our chapter, namely, that the life and work of Yeshua the Messiah forms the paradigm for those who would be his followers, in the same way that Yeshua in his incarnation submitted fully to the Father, and by that, in his infinite grace and wisdom and power, enabled sinners to become forever his in eternity. This brings true joy in serving Yeshua, for even as he has ascended on high as the victor, over sin and death, so even now, by faith, we possess that which we will fully experience in eternity, that is, having our sinful nature eradicated and enabled forever fully to bask in the glory of God as those he has made forever righteous in all aspects of life. As Fee notes, the power of the resurrection by which they now participate in his sufferings, thus being conformed to his death, is also the guarantee of their own sure future, toward which he, that is Paul, has just urged them to follow him in eager pursuit. Basically, in a nutshell, what Paul is telling the Philippians in our verses 15 through 17 is that he is on the same path as they are, and he has the same assurance that they ought to have that that path will ultimately lead to full and complete success in becoming what God wants us to be. That ought to be a tremendous encouragement, a tremendous joy in our life, that we know that we, together with God by His Spirit, will more and more make progress to be what we ought to be, and that is giving Him the full glory and being testimonies of his greatness in this world. He goes on to say, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So, here once again we see that he's not telling them at the beginning in verse 15 that he's just perfect and he thinks everybody else should be perfect if we think of the word perfect as you know without sin and no defects or anything. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying he's on the path He's on the route to that complete perfection. And that in itself gives us the encouragement and the courage and the strength by God's Spirit to continue forward, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and to give ourselves more fully to the Lord. 
He says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul once again addresses the Philippian believers as brethren, just as he did in verse 1 and 13 of this chapter. He does so to emphasize that he is one with them in the family of God as those who have been brought near to him through the redemption purchased by the death and life of Yeshua. The very fact that Paul begins this verse with brethren helps us better to understand his admonition in the words, follow my example. Now, it is true that in the Jewish world in which Paul lived, a teacher or mentor was to set a prime example for his students of what they were to emulate in terms of gaining knowledge and ability to live out that which they were taught at the feet of their teacher. In other words, they were to be the teacher was to be an example of what he was teaching his his students to be. And Paul's using that same metaphor here. The Greek of the opening phrase utilizes the word zoumimetei. Uh, formed on a form of the preposition with, zoon, which becomes zoom when it's next to a mem. Uh, so, zoom mi metai, which means to imitate. This word is found only here in the apostolic scriptures. Paul uses it here to encourage the Philippian believers to be imitators with him. Not of him, but with him, which helps us understand his meaning, and it is this. Even as Paul sought to imitate and emulate the very walk of life exemplified by Yeshua himself, so he enjoins his readers, and us, to follow his example and seek to walk in the footsteps of Messiah Yeshua, that is, to see him as the pattern of life we as his disciples are likewise to emulate. Thus Paul is saying in this text, Follow me as you see me following Yeshua. Well, and that's something that every teacher, every leader, every father, every mother ought to be seeking for as they become the example for others to follow. How devastating it is when someone who is a teacher in a community who has uh, been up telling them what the scriptures say and so forth and so on, and that he uh, ends up uh, failing in his life given over to sin that was secret and then discovered. Well, it is the enemy's desire that those who are uh, leaders should fail. So, if we have any form of leadership, whether that's in the home, whether that's in the community, whatever it may be, it could be one-on-one with other people and so forth, we need to be very cognizant of the fact that we cannot allow things into our lives that will open any avenue for the enemy. He says, Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So further, Paul does not set himself up as the only or even the primary example for his readers to follow, but encourages them to see the same pattern of striving to live a life worthy of being called into God's family by others who are leaders, teachers, and those who have gained a growing maturity in living out a genuine life of faith. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. They, like Paul, were proclaiming, follow me as I follow Messiah Yeshua. That is the best aspect for a leader to uh, attain to. Follow me in the same way that I follow Messiah. This teaching of Paul makes it extremely clear that those who would strive to be leaders at any level in the local body of Messiah must have as one's primary purpose to have a life that exemplifies true obedience and love for God and His Word. That Paul could use the plural, observe those who walk, surely indicates that he considers his position as an apostle of Yeshua not to have given him a higher requirement to follow Yeshua than is given to all believers. All who belong to Yeshua through faith in Him are called to be living examples of what lives truly are that are being transformed into living witnesses of Yeshua's own life. So it's for us all. It's not just for the few. And as we together in a community grow to be more like Yeshua, we enable uh, ourselves to be a better witness to those who are in that process behind us and coming up in the same way that we have and continuing to grow 
to be more and more like Yeshua. This perspective corresponds to Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So, you see, this is exactly the, the pattern that is laid down in the scriptures. It is that we become an example, we help others to become what God wants them to be, then they become examples for others in the way they live their lives and live unto the Lord. And then the verse 18, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Messiah. Once again, the biblical use of the verb walk, peripateo, means the manner in which one lives out one's life. That Paul states that many walk in a way that totally undermines their lip service of being followers of Yeshua may uncover the fact that these were those who attached themselves to the, quote, new religion about Yeshua, perhaps expecting that this new religion would offer special power, prestige, or other things longed for by the sinful nature. Or perhaps they were just enamored with something new or novel and came along for the ride. Well, uh, man's religion can attract those kinds of uh, responses. And uh, only the Lord, by his Spirit, can bring about the change of heart. But the reality was that their joining with those who confessed Yeshua not only was a sham, but also weakened the community of true believers until and when they were dismissed from the community of faith for their unwillingness to repent and believe with genuine saving faith. This is why. Uh, I know years ago at our community we had a sign out on the road that said everyone's welcome. And it wasn't long until we realized that wasn't the right sign. You cannot have the kind of bearing each other's burdens and helping one another and caring for one another within a believing community and have it open to just anybody and everybody that, that walks in. Now, clearly, there may be those who are believers who want to join. That's great. But there needs to be an understanding that we come together to do what God has intended us to do, not just to entertain one another or to have a social event. We come together to be the body of the Messiah and to help one another grow in their ability to function as God intends within that community and then as we go out into the world. But Paul's words here are very strong. Rather than being those whose lives exemplified the renewed life of the redeemed, they were enemies of the cross of Messiah. That is a bold statement. This means that in their self-centered lives, yet masquerading as true followers of Yeshua, they were projecting to the masses that being a follower of Yeshua was no different than those who worshipped false deities, just different religious activities. Surely we are not exempt in our modern world of being charged with a similar indictment as Paul has given to the false believers of his day. How many churches and gatherings of people fit under the general label of Christian but are in God's eyes enemies of the cross of Yeshua, for they teach that which is contrary to the gospel itself. Well, I don't, I don't have the ability to make an answer to that or to judge that, uh, that question, but you just have to believe that there's plenty of it going on in our world. One commentator puts it this way, Paul now switches back to a negative example presented by those whose lives do not conform to the cross. Who they might be is irrelevant to Paul's argument. They were believers who simply serve as a foil. The enemies are not those on the outside, but those on the inside, those who bear the name of Christian, but who live no differently from the unredeemed pagans. Here once again we are reminded that the fallen nature of mankind thinks that one can win favor with God through one's own abilities, desires, and religious practice. It is not in the fallen human nature to humble oneself and admit that, quote, I am entirely unable to win the favor of God or to do enough good to earn his power. Playing religion is the bent of the sinful nature, and a true change can come only 
when the Spirit of God quickens the mind to know that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. As Paul teaches us in Romans 7.18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Only when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, brings true conviction and the gift of faith is fallen, mankind enabled to serve him in spirit and in truth. Well, this is what John means when he wrote, John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It can't just be a going through the motions, an outward manifestation. It has to be real. And I have to believe that those of you that are gathering here to uh, have this time with us, you understand that and you know that there has been a change in your lives and that that change has enabled you to be the person that you otherwise could never be and continuing to grow in that. And may all of our communities, wherever we, we fellowship, wherever we worship together, in just even in our families, in our uh, close associations and in our communities, may this message of Philippians that we've centered on tonight really honestly encourage us to be the people God intends us to be. Do the hard things if needed. Seek forgiveness from someone that you've sinned against. Uh, be willing to receive the one who comes to you for forgiveness. And help one another in genuine love, which sometimes is tough love, right? Coming alongside of someone whose life is not measuring up at this point, or who has become entangled with things they shouldn't be. And we come alongside of them because we want to help them. That's the tough stuff that we need to do. But it's for the glory of God, and he gives us the ability. Okay, I hope this has been uh, been valuable. And I hope that you'll uh, do with it as, as the Lord would have, and that it would be a blessing for you. We'll look forward to being together with you next week as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. <laughs>